0: i want to ask this morning, what are you living for? What are you living for? Who are you living for? If you haven't given those questions very much thought, that doesn't mean there aren't answers. We all are living for someone. We're all living for something. If you are a child, you might be living to make your parents happy. You might be living to have fun. You might be living to be the best at something. As you get older, those aspirations might change a little bit. You might start living for the acceptance of your peers or success in your schooling or, or for a relationship, for a girlfriend or a boyfriend. Adults tend to live for whatever the next thing in life is, a successful career, to get married, to buy your own house, to start a family, save for the future. Behind these external aspirations, there's more fundamental goals that we're living for. We live for comfort, we live for security, we live for pleasure, we live for a sense of fulfillment. Well, what God's Word teaches us is that whatever and whoever we live for, this is our God. The person or the thing that captures your affections, that consumes your attention, that directs your ambitions, that is what you worship. And this morning what we need to hear and believe is this, Jesus Christ is the only one worth living for. Jesus is the one who should most capture our affections. Jesus is the one who should most consume our attention. Jesus' kingdom is the thing that should most direct our ambitions. And this is because Jesus is the one true God and Jesus is the King of Kings. Come can you open your Bibles to Matthew 27. This morning is the final sermon of our series through the Gospel of Matthew called Following the Fulfillment. Our passage is Matthew 27, verse 55 through Matthew 28, verse 20, the title of this morning's message is The Resurrected King. You know, the New Testament is filled with teaching on the significance of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. For instance, as we scan the New Testament, we see that His resurrection signifies our justification before God. His resurrection tells us that we have been justified by His blood. His resurrection signifies his victory over Satan's power and over all powers. His resurrection signifies the hope of our own future resurrection. The resurrection is so significant that Paul wrote, if Christ has not been raised, then we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has been raised And there's one particular note of significance that Matthew puts front and center for us as he concludes his gospel. The resurrection signifies Jesus' kingship. The resurrection signifies Jesus' kingship. The resurrection of Jesus is the coronation of Jesus. And we should live our lives for his glory and for his kingdom. We're gonna see this theme emerge today as we walk through seven movements in Matthew's resurrection account. We're gonna see seven movements to this final part of the story as we conclude the Gospel of Matthew today. We'll begin where we left off last week at the cross, verses 55 through 66. Here, the first movement we see is the assurance of Jesus's death. The assurance of Jesus's death. Read with me, beginning Matthew 27, verse 55. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea, named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he is risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Why is it that when the Apostle Paul reminded the Corinthian church of the gospel, he included the phrase, He was buried? Or, why is it that when we confess the Apostles' Creed together, we say he was crucified, died, and was buried? It's because of this. If Jesus wasn't buried, maybe Jesus didn't really die. Maybe he simply appeared to have died on the cross. Maybe he just fainted, but wasn't actually dead. This is, in fact, one of the most common theories today of those who denied the resurrection, that he didn't really die. Well, of course, if this is true, then there is no resurrection to speak of at all. Jesus was merely revived. That's what some say, but is there substance to that claim? Well, Let's consider what Matthew tells us in these verses. First, notice that Matthew focuses in on a small group of women. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the unnamed mother of the sons of Zebedee. These women were followers of Jesus who had ministered to him and his disciples during his ministry. Now at this point, all the other disciples have fled away in fear, but these women were there at Golgotha, and they watched the events of the crucifixion. They saw his crucifixion. Afterward, Matthew tells us about another disciple. He was a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea, and he wanted to show respect for the body of Jesus. He asked permission from Pilate, and the soldiers gave him Jesus' body. Joseph, probably with help from his servants, wrapped the body in burial clothes, laid it in his own tomb that he had cut out of the rock, and then he rolled a heavy stone over the entrance to the tomb. And again, Matthew tells us that the two women who had watched his crucifixion also watched his burial. But it wasn't just his followers who (laughs) knew about his burial. So did Jesus' enemies. Jesus had alluded to his resurrection at various times during his ministry, and they knew that. And though they had successfully ended his life, they were still fearful that the disciples might try to pull off a major hoax, steal his body, claim that he rose again. So what did they do? They received permission from Pilate, and they secured the tomb, and they set an entire guard of soldiers at the tomb. And all of this, what we need to notice is the variety of witnesses that we have to the reality that Jesus did die. The soldiers removed his body from the cross. Joseph wrapped his body and laid him in a tomb. The woman witnessed his crucifixion and his burial. And even the Jewish leaders set a guard at the tomb to keep the body from being taken. As one commentator writes, Jews and Gentiles, friends and enemies, all alike testified to the great fact that Christ did really and actually die and was laid in a grave. The burial of Jesus assures us of his death, and this makes what happens next in the story the greatest news in history, the announcement of Jesus' resurrection. The announcement of Jesus' resurrection, Matthew 28, verses 1 through 7. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. The women who had witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus and the burial of Jesus, they go to the tomb on early Sunday morning. And when they arrive, Jerusalem experiences its second earthquake in three days. Remember from last week that the first earthquake marked the death of Jesus. Well, this earthquake marks forever the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It's caused by a glorious angel. Matthew tells us this angel descended from heaven, came and rolled the stone away and sat on it. So you need to picture that image in your mind. Here's this bright, mighty angel who single-handedly rolls away this heavy stone that sealed the tomb of Jesus. And what does the angel do? He sits down on the stone. You know, usually when angels appear in Scripture, they stand as warriors, commissioned by God, sent to announce what God is about to do, the work he's about to accomplish. But this angel rests on the stone, as if to say, the work is done. And then he makes the announcement of victory. He is not here. He has risen as he said. Jesus, who was crucified, has risen from the dead. Let's not skip over those three words, as he said. Remember Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Remember Matthew 17. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. Remember Matthew 20, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, He took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way He said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn Him to death. They will deliver Him to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and He will be raised on the third day. You see, Jesus said this would happen, and it happened. Jesus said He would be raised on the third day, and He was. And here's what this means. It means that Jesus is who he said he was and he has done what he said he would do. You see, Jesus' resurrection is the proof. It is the vindicating sign that he really is the Son of God and that his sacrificial death really does save us from our sins. He's not just a man who said he was going to die to save us. He did die to save us from our sins. The resurrection tells us that. Because he has risen as he said, we can be sure of all that he has said. After announcing his resurrection, the angel gives the woman a job to do. Before we get to what is known as the Great Commission in verses 18 to 20, we have what I'm going to call the mini commission in verse 7. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and behold he's going before you to Galilee, there you will see him. See I have told you. This leads us to the third movement of the story, the appearance of Jesus to his followers. The appearance of Jesus to his followers. Verses 8 through 10. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Matthew tells us that the women left the tomb with fear and great joy. This is the kind of fear that you get when something is just so incredibly wonderful that you just hope you aren't dreaming. But before they even reach the disciples, they get an even greater assurance. They encounter the resurrected Jesus for themselves. Jesus who was arrested, Jesus who was scourged, Jesus who was mocked, Jesus who was crucified, Jesus who was buried, this Jesus appears to them with nothing more than a wonderful hello. Hello. Greetings. It's me. And what do they do? They came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. They kneeled before him. They ascribed ultimate worth to him. They gave him glory and honor. They poured out their affections on him. In this moment, these women were taken up with the absolute worth of Christ, and they ascribed to him the glory due his name. Now, what was it that moved these women to respond like this? We we might assume that maybe Jesus' physical appearance was glorious in some way. Maybe it was emanating, maybe it was brilliant, resplendent, maybe it was like the transfiguration, but everything about the resurrection account seems to indicate to us that his resurrection body appeared somewhat ordinary. His glory was still veiled. And the reason I bring this up is because it helps us to understand that they worshiped Jesus not because of what they could physically see, though he was there, but they worshiped him because of what his resurrection signified they realized that he is the Son of God and the Son of Man, the King of creation and the King of the nations, the Lamb who was slain and the Lion of the tribe of Judah. His resurrection signified his true glory to them. And it signifies this to us today. We don't need to see visible manifestations of his glory to be moved to worship Jesus. All we need is to behold the glory of Jesus as we hear the Spirit of God, testify in the Word of God of his life and his death and his resurrection. See Jesus this morning. See the risen Christ who was crucified for our sins and is risen again in power. And as these women did so today, worship him. Ascribe worth to him. Give him glory. Pour out your affections on him. The woman's focused worship of Jesus gives way to Jesus, repeating the mini-commission, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, there they will see me. The women are charged again, go and tell this good news. And as they do, Matthew tells us that there's an alternate story that begins to spread. This brings us to the fourth movement of the story, the opposition to Jesus' gospel. The opposition to Jesus' gospel, verses 11 through 15. Church, I want to tell you that fake news is not a modern problem. The very day that Jesus rose from the dead, at the very moment that the first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection were on their way to share the good news, a false narrative began to spread. When the guard that was at the tomb told the Jewish leaders what had happened, the earthquake, the angel, the empty tomb, the leaders refused to even consider for a moment the possibility that Jesus actually had risen from the dead. Instead, they come up with a different story to tell. Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Now, the story itself is not very believable. Did a whole guard of soldiers really fall asleep at once while they were charged to stop the disciples from doing this very thing? And not one of them was stirred at all by the supposed activity of these disciples removing this heavy stone from the grave? And if they were asleep, how did they know the disciples were the ones who stole it? And if they knew they were, why would the disciples not be arrested for doing so? And would the disciples have done this after running away from Jesus when he was arrested? And yet, for all that lacked in credibility, Matthew tells us that this story caught on. It had been spread among the Jews to the day that he was writing this gospel. And here's what we need to see, church. Jesus was opposed at his birth. He was opposed in his life, he was opposed in his death, and he's opposed in his resurrection. Though the gospel is truly good news, the world prefers to hear fake news. Why is that? Why doesn't the world want to hear the good news that Jesus has risen from the dead? Well, it's because the good news puts Jesus at the center. False accounts put us at the center. If the good news is true, then Jesus is king. But if we can invalidate that good news in our own minds, then we can continue to live for ourselves. And along those lines, I want to ask you today, if you question Jesus' resurrection, do you actually want to believe? Or is your denial of his resurrection actually rooted in your desire to live for yourself? Is your denial of his resurrection actually just an expression of your desire to be king of your own life? Have you considered that you stumble over this fact because you don't actually want to submit to his kinship? If that's you this morning, then hear the testimony of those who have submitted to his kinship. There is nothing better than living for Jesus. There's nothing better than living with Jesus as your king. His death has made a way for you to be forgiven. His resurrection proves that way is true. And I urge you this morning, submit to Jesus as your king today. Church, though opposition to the gospel continues, we don't need to be discouraged by this because we worship a Savior who has overcome all opposition. This leads us to the final paragraph of the Gospel of Matthew, the fifth movement in the story, the appearance of Jesus to his followers The appearance of Jesus to his followers. Here we have a second appearance, verses 16 and 17. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. The eleven disciples, Judas is no longer with them, of course. They hear the report from the women and, and they go to Galilee as Jesus had instructed them to do. And for the second time in this chapter, Jesus' followers see him and they worship him. This time, however, Matthew adds something that surprises us, but some doubted. Some of the translations are helpful to capture the meaning of this. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some hesitated. They beheld the risen Christ, but they hesitated to worship him because they doubted whether it was really true. And this raises for us a very real struggle that we have. Our doubt of Jesus makes us hesitant to truly worship Jesus. Notice the connection between worship and faith. If we believe, we will worship, but if we doubt, we will hesitate to worship. How can we worship if we aren't convinced of who he is? Now in that state, we might think to ourselves, if only I could see the risen Christ, then I'd believe. But there's a problem, isn't there? Some of these disciples did see the risen Christ, and they doubted anyways. So what is the answer? I'll put it to you this way. I, I asked myself this week, why do I believe in the resurrection of Jesus? Is it because of the historical evidence for the empty tomb? Is it because of the way that the apostles in the early church gave their lives for the sake of the gospel? Is it because there's a case to be made for Christ, because there's evidence that demands a verdict? Well, all of that's true, but it's not the fundamental reason I believe in the resurrection. Here's why I believe in the resurrection, for the Bible tells me so. For the Bible tells me so. You see, Romans 10 tells us this, faith comes from hearing, and hearing from the Word of God. We could behold Jesus with our eyes and still doubt what we see. But when we hear the word of God, the spirit of God enables us to behold him with our hearts. The spirit of God uses the word of God to grant us faith in Jesus. We believe in the resurrection because we believe in the scriptures that God has inspired. And they tell us he has risen from the dead. And so if you find yourself hesitating to truly worship Jesus on this Resurrection Sunday, if you find your life just bogged down by doubt in your worship of Jesus, begin asking God to open the eyes of your heart. And then begin seeking Him through His Word. Read it, listen to it, reflect on it, study it with others. The Spirit will move you from doubt to faith to worship. And in fact, this is exactly what Jesus does for these doubting disciples. He speaks to them. And it's to Jesus' final words in the Gospel of Matthew that the story goes next. The announcement of Jesus' authority. The announcement of Jesus' authority. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you." Now, if you've been in church for some time, then these words of Jesus are likely very familiar to you. We refer to them as the Great Commission. I preached on this passage a few years ago. I'm certain that we will look at this passage again in our future. But this morning, in light of the entire scope of Matthew and the story of the resurrection, I want to challenge you today to think of these verses not as the Great Commission, but instead as the Great Coronation. The Great Coronation. I say this because this is the primary emphasis of these words. It's not his instructions, it's his authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Let's think about what Jesus means. On on the one hand, if we think back what we've already seen in the Gospel of Matthew, we quickly remember that Jesus has displayed his authority many times. He taught with authority. He displayed his authority over sickness, over demons, over nature, over the Sabbath, over the temple. He even declared that he had authority to forgive sins. So his authority is not a new theme in Matthew. What is new is this. The resurrected Jesus has been given all authority. You see, during his earthly ministry, as he submitted to the Father's will, Jesus' authority was limited to the people and places where he ministered. But now, as the risen Christ, his authority extends from heaven to earth, from east to west, over all things visible and invisible. He has been placed high above every rule and authority. In other words, Jesus has been crowned by his Father as the King of all creation. This is the great coronation. Therefore, because Jesus has been crowned as the king of all creation, because Jesus' authority extends across the universe, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Because Jesus has all authority, we must make disciples of all nations. We must go to all peoples and proclaim the good news that he is king, that he's made a way for sinners to be in his kingdom. We must call them to repent of their sins. We must call them to commit themselves to Jesus as their king. We must baptize them in the name of the now revealed triune God. We must teach them to follow Jesus as we ourselves seek to follow him. Jesus is the king. We are his ambassadors. And I want us to see something at work now in this final passage today. Notice the experience of the characters in this story. Notice the way that the resurrection story moves through Matthew 28. An angel announced Jesus' resurrection to the woman, and then the woman encountered Jesus for themselves. Likewise, the woman announced Jesus' resurrection to the disciples, and then the disciples encountered Jesus for themselves. And here Jesus tells the disciples, Announce my resurrection to the nations. What will happen? People will encounter Jesus for themselves. This is the pattern of disciple making. We announce the good news, people encounter Jesus. We announce the gospel, people experience the resurrected Jesus for themselves. This is how the gospel moves forward in the world. This is the great coronation, and we are his ambassadors. At the same time we've already seen, ambassadors will face opposition. The good news will not be received as good news. Just as Jesus suffered, so we also will suffer for his sake. And this leads us to the last verse of the Gospel of Matthew. Words of comfort from the king. The assurance of Jesus' presence. The assurance of Jesus' presence. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. When the angel announced the birth of Jesus to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew told us this, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now this virgin-born son, who was taken to Egypt as a baby, lived an obscure life in Nazareth, was baptized with the repentant by John, was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, was proclaimed proclaimed the kingdom of heaven, taught the truth with all authority, healed the sick, healed the oppressed, entered triumphantly into Jerusalem, was betrayed in the garden, condemned by Pilate, scourged and crucified by the soldiers, buried by Joseph, and who rose again with all authority. This is the one who says, I am with you always. And when Jesus says, I am with you always, we understand it is God who is with us always. It is God who is with us. J.C. Ryle draws out for us the meaning of that. He is with us daily to pardon and forgive. He is with us daily to sanctify and to strengthen, with us daily to defend and to keep with us daily to lead and to guide, with us in sorrow and with us in joy, with us in sickness and with us in health, with us in life and with us in death, with us in time and with us in eternity. And then one day Jesus says that the end of the age will come. The Son of Man will appear in all his glory and we will be with him in his Father's kingdom forever. And it's in the comfort of his presence with us now, in the hope of his return to us then, that we can boldly go into the world and announce the good news that Jesus, who was crucified, has risen from the dead. The king who loved us and gave himself for us is with us. Church, Jesus' resurrection is Jesus' coronation. He is our king. As we conclude the Gospel of Matthew this morning, let's mark this final truth. Jesus, the King of Kings, is worthy of our trust. He's worthy of our worship. And he's worthy of our obedience. Jesus, the King of Kings, is worthy of our trust. He's worthy of our worship. And he's worthy of our obedience. This morning, trust him as your Savior. Glorify him as your God. Follow him as your King.